Hello, Marvelites. You are listening to Marvel's Pull List for new Marvel Comics on sale November 10th, 2021. I'm Ryan Panagos, aka Agent M. And I'm Tucker Marcus. And this is our landmark 175th episode celebrating such landmarks for the big 175. We're Fantastic Four 175, whereupon, for some reason, the High Evolutionary was fighting Galactus, which you think would be a lopsided affair, but they did it. Or Uncanny X-Men celebrated their 20th anniversary with 175 with a great cover with Dark Phoenix on it. So we are in hollowed ground. 175. It's making me think about counter-Earth things when you mentioned evolutionary. I want (laughs) to hear the counter-Earth version of our show. Literally where my brain went as well. Like it's definitely a cat version of me and like a donkey version of you yeah, as the yeah. host. Because they're all like animal people on Counter-Earth. Yeah. Um, and it's it's got to be real weird. But we're not just cat and donkey men. We are here to tell you all about the new Marvel Comics on sale this week. We're going to tell you about what's happening with Infinity Comics on Marvel Unlimited. We'll get to some collections. And we have a reading club later this episode. What's the reading club, Tucker? Uh, This week, we're chatting with comedian and writer Sophie Santos, and we are going deep. We are chatting about Demon in a Bottle. That's the nine-issue arc from Invincible Iron Man back in the late 70s, early 80s. A very, very, very famous arc, obviously, that explores some really, really fascinating angles of Tony Stark. So we're diving into that with Sophie. Yeah. Before we get into that, we have a whole host of new comic books to talk about. We're going to give our three picks and then dive into uh, giving out some great awards for the rest of the books that are out there. Our first pick of the week is The Thing, number one, a brand new Thing series written by Walter Mosley, art by Tom Riley, colors by Jordi Belair, letters by VCs Joe Sabino. The thing that strikes me most about this, and it's a great Ben Grimm story, we'll talk about Walter, but boy, oh boy. Tom Riley. For me, Tom's art stands alongside of a certain kind of style that I associate with guys like Chris Samney and Leo Romero and Greg Smallwood. There's a, as our producer Jasmine said before we were recording, a clean look to this work. The line work, it feels really very deliberate. It's a beautiful book. Jordy coming in here to really hone everything together with the colors. But I just keep thinking about the vibe of this book, the look of this book. And there's this one panel of Ben Grimm, who has just come back from a fishing trip. And he's got on like a fisherman's knit cap. He's got on these big like reddish orange overalls and a shirt. And It's the best look. It looks so cool. But this is a thing story set in the past. It sets um, years ago where he was just engaged to Alicia and, you know, there's stuff going on with the FF and he gets involved with Hercules in the storyline. It's not a, you know, super happy Ben Grimm quippy story, which I guess when you get down to it, a lot of solo Ben stories tend to be a little bit more maudlin because he's a kind of a sad character. He's bummed about his lot in life a lot of times. He's quick to anger. And in this issue, there's a villain that's in here that is creepy. I will say it involves like the actual heart of somebody and pulling stuff out and putting stuff in and twisting it around and being gnarly and crazy. On top of all that, we've just got some really raucous 
wonderful art throughout this entire book. It's a little bit of a horror book at times. And I think Walter Mosley does a great job eliciting those feelings and working alongside Tom to really give us unsettling feelings. There's this two-page spread that is gorgeous. And it's like tons of dead bodies of all shapes and sizes. And I really do mean all shapes and all sizes. That thing sort of looks out upon It's really cool. I don't know much about where the story is going, and I'm not like terribly familiar with Walter Mosley's work. He's like an incredible crime fiction writer, but I read this and I'm like, this is not a Ben Grimm story I know, and I'm incredibly excited to read more of. Talking a lot about the fantastic, really, really beautiful art in that issue. There's some gorgeous stuff on the way this week in my pick which is Amazing Spider-Man number 78. Who is the artist on this? It's Sara Pichelli, right alongside Jim Toe. And it's written by one of our faves, Kelly Thompson. Colors are by Nolan Woodard with Rochelle Rosenberg. And letters are by VCs Joe Caramagna. Look, obviously, we're talking about some of the finest pros in the industry who are bringing you this individual issue. So, of course, it's going to be amazing. Of course, it's going to be gorgeous. I've also been really loving these Arthur Adams covers that we've gotten in the Beyond arc so far. This cover is just one of my favorites. And if you've taken a peek in that cover, you know that this is a Dr. Michael Morbius story. Dr. Mike showed up at the end of ish number 77, and now here he is in full flight going up against Ben Riley. It's a bad time to be the guy in the Spidey suit. I mean, it's almost as if that's a really dangerous job because obviously Pete is out of commission and now Ben is really up against it. Uh, He took a bite to the neck and he is hanging on by a thread. I think the way the story is paced, the way that you feel the character giving everything they've got to just make it out alive, you know what I mean? And sort of not aiming any higher than that for the time being is a really visceral feeling. And it's something that totally comes across. Now, we don't just have that story. Of course, there's so many other things happening. I think it's all just woven in together absolutely beautifully. At the same time, there's like some crazy action that I love. I love that they've been so daring with this story arc. They're not holding back. And by the looks of it, we are going to continue a pace with the next test on the way for Ben Riley and for all of his cohorts. This has just been a fantastic opening salvo of a new era of Amazing Spider-Man. It's a very, very high bar to reach for anyone involved in comics ever. So kudos to the Beyond Board. Congratulations to everybody who has been telling a, just a wonderful story that I've really, really been into and long may it last. Uh, let's keep with more whipping action with Venom, number one, a big brand new Venom series. It is a big meaty 50 plus pages of comics, and it's an incredible creative team to, to see the return of artist Brian Hitch is wonderful, and it, it means a lot. It's very exciting. Brian is penciling this issue in the series, and it is written by Al Ewing and Rom V, who are working together to tell the story. We're focusing not just on Eddie Brock, but also on Dylan Brock. So the two of them are taking some really cool turns in how they handle the title. And so we'll experience that as we go along. Uh, inks on this issue by Andrew Curry, colors by Alex Sinclair, and letters by VCs Clayton Cowles. There was a Venom story in Free Comic Book Day that sort of alluded to some wild things happening. And this, the big 50-odd pages of this story really unleash a huge sort of seismic shift 
even though we've already had huge seismic shifts for Venom in the last year or so, it is not anything at all like the Venom series by Donny Cates and Ryan Stegman and, and J.P. Meyer and company. It is much more of a horror title. If you read the note at the end by editor Devin Lewis, he talks about how much he is a fan of the horror work from both Al and Rom. And so getting them to sort of push it in that direction, this feels like a much scarier, creepier, even though I will say this has definitely got big giant action moments in it. I mean, there's explosions and there's this big double page spread by Brian Hitch. Again, I freaking love Brian Hitch and having him come in and do these widescreen giant vistas. And there's, you know, pages of him just unleashing Venom. There's one where Venom is jumping up and he's got one soldier in his hand and the, the guy's head is just being like held and it looks so cool. We've got all that, but there's gnarly like space stuff and psychological stuff and really creepy portents of things to come. I don't want to give too much away, but Eddie's journey as now the king in black, the head of all symbiotes, it goes in such a wild direction in this first issue that I'm like, where are we going? I'm excited for it. There's new concepts in here. There's new characters. We have a talking symbiote cat, aka Sleeper. So I already have some deep fondness for this book from that. Plus, Brian Hitchart, just a true triple D ding dang delight. It's a creepy as hell book. I'm, I'm excited for more. And a lot of like, all right, where the hell are we going with it in all the best ways? Mm -hmm. And did we mention Brian Hitch art? By the oh, way, <laughs> can I tell you, Brian Hitch is doing the art on this book? Oh, yes. If y'all don't know Brian Hitch, then just pull him up on Marvel Unlimited. Go check out that body of work. Lots of Marvel UK stuff that was still gorgeous back in the early 90s and like X-Men stuff and various different things. But Ultimates is going to knock your socks off if you've never read it. Just the best. Uh, all right. Now we're diving into all the new Marvel mags coming your way this week. And to each of them, we will be handing out with all this high evolutionary talk. I just went down that corner of the Marvel Universe rabbit hole in my head. And one of the other things that I remember as being a specific part of that whole thing is Mount Wondagore. So we yeah. shall be handing out the Mount Wondagore Standard of Excellence Award Ooh. to each of these comics. And we're starting off with Alien number eight. This is crazy. Oh my God. Somehow they keep amping up the action. They keep amping up the pressure. Obviously, this is built from page one of this entire series to be a horror comic. It's meant to tingle your spine. It's meant to make you cringe and make you want to turn the page faster because you can't like simultaneously wait to see what happens, but also you don't want to see what happens to these characters. What's really great, and I think what Philip Kennedy Johnson, who's the writer, is tapping into, especially in this issue, but it's been a recurring theme that you know he understands the world of aliens so well, is that sometimes the xenomorph isn't the greatest villain. Sometimes the xenomorph isn't the greatest threat that the people in our story are facing. So to dive into some of that, while also getting plenty of absolutely bonkers xenomorph action in here is really, really fun. So Mount Wondergore Standard of Excellence Award goes to the last page because scary, great, perfect. That's what it is. Yeah. I also want to give my Mount Wondergore Standard of Excellence Award for the last page of Avengers Tech On number four. It's a big 
just rollicking Japanese style epic with superheroes and big mech suits and uh, villains with nefarious plots. And if you, you know, you love any sort of Super Sentai book or show or series, you're going to feel right at home here. But the last page has a massive reveal and thing that shows up and it looks real cool. It just looks just wildly very cool. Yeah. All right. Next up, we have Deadpool Black, White, and Blood number four. And boy, oh boy, do we get some auteur genius work in this issue. As usual, this is comprised of multiple stories. The first one is called Cherry, which is written by Christopher Yost, a great writer across many of, I think, probably your favorite Marvel things. This is a really, really, I think like a perfectly voiced sort of dark Deadpool. I think it's done beautifully. The second one is called Samurai Version, which I love. I love that title. That's written by Senshiro Kasama with art by Hikaru Uesugi, which is another one. Just beautiful. I think it really has a specific tone to it, that one. You know, that's like obviously more of a If you take a single peek at it, you know, it's like more of a manga influenced look, which I think it's obviously such a kinetic look. And it's something that I think Deadpool is fit perfectly for. So shout out to all the creators on that one. But the final story is called Operation Payback. And that is written and has art by Michael Allred with colors, of course, by Laura Allred. Rejoice, all ye fans of Michael and Laura Allred. We just get more beautiful, amazing, perfect stuff from that modern Marvel masterful duo here in the form of Deadpool. It is just so much fun, so delightful. So to the Allreds goes my uh, Matt Wondergore Standard of Excellence Award. Yeah, I just got to say the story by Chris Yost made me laugh and made me so sad. And it was so good. Up next, another amazing book and one that was nearly one of our picks is Eternals number seven. Last week we had on writer Kieran Gillen. So we talked a little bit about the story that he's building and some of the stuff going on around all this. This book is so wild and so weird and cool and creepy and friggin' gorgeous. Of course, of course, it's one of the most beautiful books that we could possibly talk about with art by Isad Rabik and Matthew Wilson. I'm trying not to spoil anything because it's all about sort of finding the new leader of the Eternals. Who who should be in charge of the Eternals? The Eternals go into the Unimind to figure out, all right, who's who's going to step up and, and lead us into this next realm? There's a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes with various groups of Eternals and some revelations from recent books. And Thanos is back in the picture as one of the Eternals, and you have Druig and his machinations and, and all stuff that's happening with Thena and Cersei. There's so much cool political stuff told in a very exciting way, but then also this vicious, gnarly battle that happens towards the end of the issue and a moment where the character that walks away in the last panel, I'm like, oh, hell yeah. Because this just sort of upturns the apple cart and I'm very excited for how they just twist the knife through the the world of Eternals and build this cool story and, and where we see these characters shake out. My Mount Wondergore standard of excellence in here goes to the conversations that two characters have throughout this issue from throughout like every part of it, especially towards the end, the very, very last page of this. I won't say who those characters are for, I don't want to give anything away, but that sort of arc of their relationship in this issue is tremendous. 
Oh yeah. All right. Next up we have Excalibur number 25, just one of the finest books around. This shouldn't make perfect sense. This shouldn't be as wonderful as it is because it is drawing from so many different genre sources from there's because of the fact that there is just so many different characters involved. There's so much going on. But if this is your first ish, if this is your 25th issue of this run, it is right there in front of you. It's right there in your hands. It works so perfectly. And that's all down to Tini and Marcus, two of the best in the biz. And, and really, I think a writer-artist duo that we've seen become more and more and more and more symbiotic over the course of this run. And that's high praise because they started it out in an amazing fashion. So Matt Wondergore's Standard of Excellence Award goes to Tini and Marcus just two of the best working it right now in the world of the X-Men. So good. Yeah. One more X book this week is Hellions number 17. And, you know, we, we talk about X-Force and what Benjamin Percy is, is a this book is poison, <laughs> you know, his thing. And I think that's true. Obviously that's poison in like a cool spy mystery thriller sort of messed up action movie. Hellions is also poison, but in the like, it's the crank version of the poison. It's just go, go, go characters that are unhinged violence. That is just totally like characters saying, what did you do? Because someone has run way out of line. It's so much fun. There's a juiciness to Hellions that I really, really love. Uh, I will give my Mount Wondergore Standard of Excellence Award to Orphan Maker in this issue. And Zeb Wells' writing of the character, it's sad and very twisted, but also cathartic and you have a sort of empathy for what the character goes through throughout this, even though by the end, when the character says, what did you do? And you get orphan makers reaction. You're like, Oh boy, Oh boy, Oh boy. It's a lot. It's great. Next up we have, Miles Morales, Spider-Man number 32. When I think of this run at this point, because the build of this series has been incredible, I think back to Saladin Ahmed's Eisner Award-winning run on Black Bolt, which is one of those that I think will go down in history as a modern classic because of how carefully arranged it all is, because of how in control Saladin is of all the emotions happening at all times. Not only do you always know where you are placed in and amidst the action that's going on in here, and the art on this issue is brought to us wonderfully by Christopher Allen, you also know where you are placed perfectly in the story and in the emotion of the story. This has some really cool Taskmaster fight scenes in it, which I really love. I love the ending of it. And then this is another last pager where I'm just like, oh, hell yeah. There's this other thing happening elsewhere that I love. And now we're getting to mix that into this book that I love. And it's just so good. So my Mount Wondergore standard of excellence absolutely goes out to Mr. A over there. Great stuff. Yeah. I, Christopher Allen is like a revelation for me. I'm like, whoa, he's doing some really cool stuff with panel layouts and, and sort of one of the other things I love about Chris Allen, and it reminds me of old school, like early mid nineties, Chris Bashalo is his little insets of caricatures of actual people, like 
Chris would put in Generation X characters in the margins and stuff like that. And Christopher Allen puts in editor Nick Lowe in little tiny ways and other people. And it's like, there's just something, there's a spark of something really cool and really fun in those pages. We got Savage Avengers number 26 out this week. I texted Jerry Duggan last time I read an issue and I was just like, it's so good. And he's like, I already missed the book because it's coming to a close. He's almost done telling his story. But man, I love this book. The first panel of this title is Kulin Goth with a character's heart beating out in his hand. That's the first panel of the book. A, a lead character, a very well-known multimedia like known around the world character. The villain of this book is holding its heart in his hands. This book is wild. I love it so much. This issue has Cool and Goth versus everyone again. And it's still bleak and fun and horrifying and nasty and full of great surprises and juggernaut and magic and all kinds of characters. And every time you see like the heroes go up, they come crashing back down and how they wrap this up. I can't wait to see it. This is for me, a perfect comic book. I will give my Mount Wondergore standard of excellence to Savage Avengers as a whole, because it stands up as like the thing I want to take. I want to take a copy of Savage Avengers and just slap everyone across the face. With them and say, <laughs> this is comic books. Read this. It's so good. Hell yeah. All right, we're jumping over to Star Wars real quick with Star Wars The High Republic number 11. This is just a space soap opera. You know, it's really leaning into what we know and love about Star Wars and about the very, very specific space it takes up in terms of tone, in terms of genre. And following that and diving into that and really submitting to that feeling is just great stuff. Now, that is obviously deeply connected, but also sort of separate to the recipient of my Mount Wondergore Standard of Excellence Award, which goes to the one and the only Phil Noto, because this is one of my favorite Noto covers, certainly on a Star Wars book in a long time. Beautiful. Yeah. Talking about beautiful books, we've got Strange Academy number 13, rounding out our new titles for the week. And look, I know we've been talking about Humberto Ramos for a long time, especially when, you know, Edgar Delgado is on colors and there's just a feeling to their work. Man, I just, every time I'm flabbergasted by the subtle things, the little shadings, the the character work that happens in the background and the panels, the way he, he can position a character and their face is just looking so, and the camera's over here, um, body posture, every single thing that he does, I, I feel like is a masterclass in how to make a great comic book. And of course, Scotty Young is also telling this great story alongside Umberto. Here, there's sort of a couple different beats that are going on. I think I want to give my Mount Wondergore standard of excellence to what happens with the character chained up in the basement and what the conversation that goes on between one of our lead characters from the school and the character who was chained up in the basement. I'm not giving names because I don't I don't want to spoil it if you've not read it, but if you've read like Doctor Strange Run by Jason Aaron and Chris Pashalo, there's some really cool stuff that ties to that that I think is really wonderful and goes in a direction I, I didn't see it going. And I think is a really wonderful, sad, sweet way to take things. Yeah, overall, I will never get over how good Humberto Ramos is. And you could go back 20 years, 50, whenever Humberto started, and you can still like, you, you just see him grow and become better, but still was always something incredibly special. Yeah. 
Now we're looking over to new Infinity Comics coming out this week. We got four of them, X-Men Unlimited, Infinity Comic 11, Hulkling and Wiccan 2, Fantastic Four, Infinity Comic number one. That is out now. It's written by Zach Gorman with pencils by Stefano Landini and colors by the great Ian Herring. And then, of course, we have Spine Tingling Spidey number two. So much fun to be had on Marvel Unlimited with Infinity Comics. So that's all of the Infinity Comics, but also on Marvel Unlimited this week, we get the first issue of Deadpool Black, White, and Blood series we truly, truly love. We've got, I think it's the last issue of Silk. We've got the second issue of X-Men and a whole bunch more. You can check all those out on Marvel Unlimited. Coming in the shape of collection this week, Reign of X Volume 5 is hitting shelves this week, and that is something that I personally would absolutely recommend doing, uh, as well as some Conan stuff. We also have Fantastic Four Epic Collection, This Flame, This Fury. A lot of really wonderful stuff coming in collections. And Tucker, yeah, there's a hardcover called a gallery edition of The Death of Captain Marvel, which is a classic Anybody out there who has not read The Death of Captain Marvel, it's a special book. It is wonderful, and it is absolutely devastating. Beautifully told by Jim Starlin and crew back in the day. All right, let's get to our reading club with our guest this week, Sophie Santos, who is with us to talk about Iron Man Demon in a Bottle, as well as uh, her work and career and so much more. Tucker, we are going to have a good conversation today with our guest, Sophie Santos. Hello, Sophie. Hello. Hello. How's it going? Wherever you all are. We are on opposite coasts here in these United States of America. I'm in New York. Tucker is in LA. Where are you, Sophie? I'm in New York, baby. Yeah. I was going to say something about how I'm by the beach and thus potentially by the Submariner. But I guess you guys are technically as well. I don't really. Is there like canonical location of Atlantis, Ryan? Oh, that's a good question. There is. And I don't remember where it is off the top of my head because it's also been in a couple of different locations. Like he's had to like relocate his people several times um, because he's the greatest. (laughs) He's one of the greatest kings in in Marvel history. So he takes care of his people as much as he can. So Sophie, uh, welcome. Welcome with our immediately esoteric uh, Submariner conversation. Damn it, I didn't realize this is what we were talking about. Well, I gotta go. To kick things off, I was really, really excited to see your choice for reading this week. And for listeners, we're checking out Iron Man, the 1968, the original series, eight issues in there, which comprise Demon in a Bottle, which is issues number 120 through 128. Which is from 1979, not from 19, just from the original series. Exactly. The the original series, which started in 68. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Sophie, why'd you pick this run? Well, I've always just wanted to be Iron Man. And like Iron Man has been like the pinnacle of everything I wanted to be. Minus the alcoholism, which we'll get into in the demon in a bottle. We'll get into all that. But, you know, I can't lie. He's one of the smartest people on the planet. He has a gazillion dollars. He has a mansion. And anyone out there that thinks that's not like, oh, you know, it's too materialistic. We all want those things. (laughs) And I, yeah, no, I don't know. I've always just been drawn to him. I just think he's just such a fun character. And then also specifically, like, why this sort of run Honestly, when I first started getting into comics and because I knew I wanted to start with Iron Man, I honestly like Googled, like, what's the best series to start with? And they were like, 
you know, you got to start with demon in the bottle. And so I did. And um, yeah, I don't know how you can get much better than this. There's so many layers, obviously demon in the bottle. The final comic is everything coming to a head for Iron Man psychologically and obviously deals with him hating his life and hating being Tony Stark and going to a really dark place, which I think is a really interesting thing to do for comics because like a lot of times it's like, no, this is, it's all positive. And, (laughs) and this is like, no, this is really, this is dark as hell. But then also reading, you know, all the issues before it and getting into, you know, how did he get to this low point? So I just thought the whole arc was just like fascinating and so well-written and funny. And I think it's just great. There's a lot to talk about with this one, but uh, I want to backtrack because, you know, you talk about when you were getting into comics, were you, you're an army brat, like traveling around a lot. One of our friends and he works at Marvel. He grew up in like Germany and Oklahoma and Texas and all these places. And so I hear all his stories of like traveling all around as a kid and like trying to learn where did he get into comics? Where did you get into comics? You know what? It's actually really sad. So yeah, I was a military kid and I'd love to say that it was my dad because my dad had probably a room full of comics before I was born and then he sold them. And it's one of those things where I rag on him now and I'm like, why would you ever sell your comics? And he's like, hindsight's 2020. I didn't know. You know, I just was trying to make a quick buck and I needed it and I need the money and all this kind of stuff. So I wish I could say it was him and that I was running around and like we were just like, being comic book nerds together, but it really was inverted. I I just started watching the movies and then the movies made me want to start reading comics. So I was actually older. I was in my twenties when I started reading comics. I also really just, I enjoy hearing the broader scale of you getting into comics, but as well as you reading Demon in a Bottle, because tell me if I'm wrong, but I get the sense that you were just approaching these things in the most organic simple way. And I think it can be a really daunting task for people who are new to comics or getting into comics for the first time to look at something like this and, and see that, for example, Iron Man started a solo series 53 years ago and go, good God, what do I do? How do I start this? But literally something as simple as Googling, like, what's the best Iron Man run? And just starting there, picking it up, <laughs> something that is just that, like, easy and like, don't overthink it. Just dive in. What's important is that you're having fun. You're reading, I think is so cool. And I think that's really great. I think you're one of the first people we've talked to who's like had the MCU as their like galvanizing thing, getting them into the comics, which I think is awesome. It's something I've heard over the last decade from tons of fans. So I'm really glad that you have that perspective. We hear a lot of like the X-Men cartoon of the nineties was a thing for a lot of people. And then from there, they like go to Spider-Man or they go to, you know, various other characters. Were there any other characters that you jumped to after Iron Man? Well, something that was like a recent thing that I really liked was the America Chavez. Well, she's in Young Avengers, but now that she has she has her own storyline. And for me, like there is a part of me that I was always like, why can't I be like, why can't I be Spider-Man? Like, why can't I be Iron Man? Like, I want to have all these things. Like, I want to be able to like be a superhero and get the girl and all these, all this sort of stuff. And then to see that happen, you know, recently over the past couple of years. And then, you know, more recently, I think it was this year, right? When her storyline came out, that's something I gravitated to because I was like, okay, awesome. There's a lesbian Avenger that is very cool and has her own relationship problems 
and we get to see that. I never really thought I'd get to see it. And so I was really excited about that. It's an interesting time that you, Sophie Santos, are talking to us in because you have a new book. Your book, The One You Want to Marry and Other Identities I've Had, is like, I don't know. And in a strange way, I think it's so exactly like it feels like that is touching on something that is so inherent to comics. Like that idea of the mutable, like changeable journey of identity of who you are to yourself, to the world, and how that can organically move throughout the years is like something that is so crucial to a comic. So you like the book that we're reading today, Demon and Bottle is a great example of that, of like, at a certain point in time, this is Tony's alcoholism, this really dark and difficult and mature element of this character was like, so at the forefront, obviously. And it's kind of rung throughout history. That at different times has taken more of a backseat, you know what I mean? Where it's like less of an emphasis on the character and other elements of the character come to the forefront. So I do think it's interesting what, that we're talking about that in this context. It is interesting. And I did feel like, obviously we don't have the same journey by any means when it comes to Demon in a Bottle versus my book, but it really is like finding my own personal destiny of who am I and what do I want and how am I serving? Like, what is my purpose? And feeling like torn between like what I'm expected to do versus what I want to do. And also what I feel, I don't know, this sounds really hokey. And comedy is not that big to be like what I'm called to do. But I do think there is something interesting, whatever you are, you know, I'm, I'm not a religious person, but I do think there's something interesting where you do feel like you, especially when you have a passion, and you know what that is. And you feel sort of called to it. And then it's like nothing can stop you from wanting to do it. But how bumpy it is along the way and how you're like really sort of fitting into, you know, the pressures of society and what they expect of you. And then finally being like, you know, it's almost like as a superhero being like, no, you know, and you're like shattering the glass and you're like, no, this is what I want to do. This is who I am. And really having to look yourself in the mirror. And I think, yeah, I think there is some sort of correlation, which is really cool. And it's probably why I was drawn to something like this specific arc. You were talking about America and connecting with that character because you're able to start seeing something of yourself reflected in the page, which I think is something so important that we at Marvel can do more and we have been doing more, but whether it's on screen or in the pages, I have to, just in case anybody hasn't read it yet, Marvel's Voice is Pride is one of our favorite books of the year. And that had so many great stories. It shines such a great spotlight on so many of our queer characters. Marvel's Voices Pride is friggin' great. And you'll see that the world of, of characters who you can discover and learn more about and fall in love with their stories and, and their drama and their everything that they've gone through is much bigger than I think people really expect. So we're, we're in a much better time and we're, it's getting better too. Yeah, and I do feel that. And I also do feel it with the movies and how they're presenting things. And, and it does feel like an exciting time. And I would love to to read that. I want to talk a little bit about, you mentioned it, comedy. <laughs> that, <old laughs> that was the, like the, the, you mentioned <laughs> comedy. 
about to get so deep. Strange transition. <laughs> I, uh, as someone who was just theater ratting around at every comedy theater in New York for a long time, I am just personally and selfishly curious to hear about that part of this linear and maybe sometimes not so linear Sophie journey that we're discussing here. What brought you into the comedy world? What made you have that sort of realization, epiphany? What excites you about it? I just want to hear the whole story when it comes to that end of things. You know, it all started off like it normally does, where um, I was a musical theater girl. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I studied theater in college. I came to New York. I was like, I was going to a couple open calls for musical theater. And I was like, whoa, this is not me. And so I was like, well, I'm going to take matters into my own hands. And I just started doing sketches. And I'd be remiss to say, like, my cousin is a stand-up. And I grew up, since I was 16, going to comedy clubs. And so when I got to New York and was, like, not happy doing musical theater and was more happy doing sketches that were bad, I was like, okay, well, there's something here. But I need some training. So then I, you know, I did what pretty much everyone does. And I started taking classes at UCB. And really just found myself and found a sense of community. And then from there, one of my teachers recommended me for a job over at MTV. And I was like, oh my God, I can get paid to do something I really like. I can really do this. Like this is an actual career. And so I leaned in even harder and I just really made it my full priority. And then from there, I was just like, you know, I work random TV gigs, but I was like really dipping my toes into doing stand up, which I particularly do like music stand up. And I do like kind of like Bo Burnham, like produce tracks. I just think they're a little bit more fun. And I was realizing again, like with lack of diversity, that there weren't really any queer shows run by queer women. And we have a space, we have distinct voices that just needs to be heard. And I was like, okay, well, I can either mope about it and be mad, or I can do something about it. So I started a show called The Lesbian Agenda, which is a very serious show where we try to enforce a new world order <laughs> with our agenda. Tell me um, more. <laughs> like, like casting Rachel Weiss in every lesbian movie until she becomes a lesbian. <laughs> Those are just one of the many things. And right away, it was a hit. And obviously, I've been doing it for three years now. So it's taken on new forms. And like, it's Now it's like, it really is kind of like if Samantha B was a lesbian, like it's a lot of segments and every segment is around an agenda item that we're trying to like do so we can send all of our audience members into the world to do said thing. And I really found my voice doing that. And it's just been such a big part of my comedy career. And ultimately because, you know, I was doing standup and really like embracing my queerness, that's how I was. I guess, kind of tapped to do the book because an editor saw me at a stand-up show. That's kind of like my my comedy journey in general. Now I'm just excited for the book to be out and and to keep going. With that said, let's talk about Demon in a Bottle, (laughs) Iron Man. Uh, Hell yeah. Yeah, we got to talk about it. Let's give the creative team. It's written by David Michelinie with plot as well by Bob Layton, pencils by John Romita Jr. and finishes by Bob Layton and friggin' Carmine Fantino, inks, which is also the finishes by Bob, letters by John Costanza, colors by Ben Sean, Carl Gafford. And then uh, I would be wrong to leave out, this is during the Jim Shooter era 
of Marvel Comics. So there's they were taking more chances. They were doing some interesting things. And I wanted to read a quote from Bob Layton about this. Bob says, Demon in a Bottle is now considered a milestone event by most comic book historians. At the time, you never anticipate that you're creating comic history. It was just another episode in the life of Tony Stark. David and I felt that we needed to create a personal problem for Tony Stark that fit the world of corporate business that we set him in. Given his passions and somewhat compulsive behaviors at time, the alcohol story seemed somewhat to be a natural. And that was it. They were just like, oh, uh, yeah, let's get him really drunk for like five straight issues and like culminate it in, into like he's gone really, really far. It's become a substance abuse problem for him. That'll be fine. And then we'll move on. To me... You step back from that, and I think about it now, if this were a story we would do, I imagine that the one issue, the one you talked about earlier, Sophie, the 128, the final part where you really dig into those aspects, the more personal issue, that would have been like three or four comics. And actually rereading it, I felt like I wanted more out of it, especially as he's trying to work through his issues, having a bunch of friends who've gone through that and who I try to support. I know it's an ongoing journey. It's it's something that never goes away. And it's something that took them a long time compressed into just these pages. I was like, man, there's, there's more meat on those bones. I wish we could have gotten more out of it. But to that quote, it's like, they were just like, hey, this is the story we want to tell right now. We'll move on. And next issue, he'll be fighting, I don't know, unicorn in, in space or something. <laughs> I agree. I do wish that the last comic issue 128 was longer i mean so basically in this last issue bethany cabe and Rhodes are essentially like you got to stop this you're ruining your life you're destroying stark international you know you can't be the head of this global billion dollar company and being like this you know tapped out and and this addicted and and so we see him struggle with it and we see him detox, but then another issue presents himself when he realizes that Stark International now is being owned by like, well, he kicked Jarvis to the curb, who was so mad that he sold and not even really mad, but he sold his stocks, the last two stocks that Stark needed to stay in control of his own company. And so when he finds that out, what happens is he's about to hit the bottle and then we see him put the bottle cap on. He's not going to do it. And he, he does literally ride into the sunset. With Bethany, <laughs> <laughs> And it's like, I don't know how, but I'm going to, I'm going to win this. I do think it would have been great to see maybe him fail one more time because this is such like the trauma, the actual trauma that he dealt with getting to this point where he's like his repulsor literally sliced through a diplomat in front of him you know, he's got Justin Hammer. Obviously, we find out that Justin Hammer now has been taking control of his suits. He doesn't have that much stake left in his own company. Obviously, it came to a head. But I do think it would have been really great to see more of a journey of like, how does he deal with this even more? Because he's at rock bottom. And when people are at that rock bottom, which I know from experience, it doesn't take just, you know... <laughs> 10 pages. <laughs> it's a, uh, we want to see probably more, you know, three or four more issues about it. Yeah. By the end of issue one, this story is so in 20 pages rich with metaphor and meaning and like literally just the idea that like one, he's fighting Submariner. And then at the end of issue number one, he's drowning in his suit, 
you know, like that's such a powerful visual and it works on obviously multiple levels in this story. And it asks questions of Tony Stark. It asks questions of Iron Man. It asks questions of the line between those two and whether this one guy can kind of handle that, how much he rationalizes it as like, that's the reason why he's doing these things and how much he just needs a break. Sophie, I'm curious when it comes to that, when it comes to Namor, the Submariner in particular, did you have any familiarity with this character at all? What was your reaction to Namor? Were you instantly a fan, not a fan? Were you a fan before? What was the Submariner story? Well, I know that he is a sex symbol. <laughs> Hell He is pure yes. sex. He is. Yes. <laughs> you are home with that opinion. Welcome. He yes. is a sex symbol. He is hot. We get it. <laughs> we get it. You know, I was actually, when I was reading it, I was like, what's going on? This guy in like a Speedo is like throwing the tank, <laughs> which is sort of erotic. Again, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, but um, yeah. And to answer your question, this is the first time I was introduced to him. And I'm kind of sad that he went away pretty quickly. He's really only there. I think it's like one or this, maybe two issues because once they realize that they're both being duped, they go and stop fighting each other and then they go and try to get off the island and go fight the real bad people. And then he just sort of swims away, <laughs> which to me is just so, you know, romantic, but also like just a little too much. Um, <laughs> I love this encounter for you, like as if you were in this story itself, where it's like this insane man with like minimal clothing swims out of the ocean throws a tank, gets into a fight, immediately discovers like this conspiracy and then swims away. <laughs> I love that <laughs> ending where you're like, wait a second, what? What just happened? <laughs> and he's never coming back? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I want you to read the 1940s Namor comics because he's one of our first superheroes. Um, he's one of the first characters from Marvel back in the 30s and 40s. And his early issues are bonkers and they're wonderful and they're weird. I've talked about it on the show before, but there's a storyline where him and the Android human torch are fighting. This is like 47 or 42. I can't remember. And at one point they fight in a zoo and they accidentally let out elephants and a woman pushing a baby carriage like runs and the baby falls out and she keeps going and he picks up the baby and he's like, what the hell? And he brings it over to some like people on a rooftop and he's like, here, take this. And they're like, oh, maybe you're not bad. And he's like, to hell with you. And he flies away. <laughs> I love Namor so much. He's so good. And I love how in this issue too, he was just like, basically, I hate humans. And he goes, oh, I have to, I have to help a human again. Yeah. You know, you're just like, <laughs> he's kind of a moody b- is. And we love him for it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Thinking in like broad terms, in general terms, sourcing your reading of this story and your understanding of this story and its context in comics, its context in like the superhero genre in general, and then extending from that to what you grew up as a fan of and what you grew up being passionate about and those kind of things. You talked about how your dad had origins in comics. I'm curious about sort of also touching on the comedy stuff as well, obviously, like a question that I love to ask when we have people on the show is like, what was their nerdy stuff when they were growing up? So like what piqued your interest? What made you have those initial like creative like impulses to go like, oh, this is something I really enjoy. This is something I'm tapping into that whether or not you could solidify it then 
you can now trace it back and be like, oh yeah, early on, this is really meaningful to me. This is the kind of stuff that mattered. Totally. James Bond was really big in our household. Star Wars was huge. Yeah. And then he really introduced me to Marvel. We watched the original Tobey Maguire Spider-Man, but it was something that I really loved. And of course, the, the foundation of that is like, you know, now I'm listening to like Dashboard Confessional and Vindicated. And I'm like, you know, becoming like this sort of pop punk driving, you know, Amberlynn, you know, and it's all because of these, <laughs> of these movies that have these soundtracks that are like defining me and making me feel like amping me up. And then as far as like other nerdy stuff, I mean, I just feel like anything that was big blockbuster, we would always go and see. In addition to that, like we played Halo all the time. Yeah. So I think those are some of the nerdy things. And then comedy was a pretty big, SNL was a pretty big deal growing up. Will Ferrell era was pretty huge. Chris Rock, huge. Eddie Izzard, huge. So those were like the sort of nerdy transformative things that really shaped me. Yeah. I love it. I grew up with my mom and father wasn't around. So my mom worked so much. And so like I was an only kid and, and didn't really have that nerdy connection with my mom. But now, like especially working from home, my daughter is like picking up Transformers off the shelves of my my office. She's picking up the comic. She's she's got her own toys that like she plays with. We watch. She loves Spider Man and stuff like that. And so I'm excited to to share that nerdiness with her. Um, speaking of parents and kids, let's talk about John Romita Jr., artist of this series and son of legendary Marvel Comics artist John Romita. The wild thing is I was looking at this art in this 1979. I was like, man, this is er- this has got to be early in Johnny Jr.'s career at Marvel. And this is 1979. He has like some early stuff, but this is like the first 10 issues of his work at Marvel and a career that has now spanned over 40 years with him, especially now, just coming back to Marvel and doing work again, which we're so happy for. He's one of my all-time favorite artists. He's done incredible stuff. He created Typhoid Mary and his run on Daredevil is something that is, I think, legendary for me. But here, he's like, you can see the how good he is as a draftsman, as an artist, but he hasn't like created his style yet. And I don't know if you follow artists, Sophie, and the way we do here on the show specifically, but like looking at the progression of especially artists who've had careers that spent decades at Marvel and they've touched every single character that are out there. I look at this and I go, man, this is just a kid who is still so good, but in like six years, he's already one of the greatest comic book artists of all time. And it's it's fascinating to me looking at these issues with that lens of like legendary comic artists just coming out of his cocoon. It's so cool. Yeah. I mean, um, unfortunately, I'm not as familiar with is sort of the journey, but I do think the art was was stunning. So it's, you know, again, I, I'm, I would love to see something a little bit later where it's like, I, to me, I'm like, wow, this is not even on the same level um, because it was so attractive. Flipping through the pages was just, you know, a, kind of like a moment. And that's really interesting to hear about the trajectory of, of the artist itself. Yeah. You know, it's funny you also mentioned James Bond in there because there is a kind of total James Bond vibe to some of these issues 
which like makes perfect sense. I mean, obviously we kick off that first issue with like the martini reference, not that it was necessarily connected at the time, but then you get into this, like the thing where if you look at the cover of issue number 125, it's like fully Tony Stark in a tuxedo with a Luger pistol hiding behind a, a wall in Monaco. And uh, it's like, wow, this is really, we're really, you know, in the spy genre here. And even like before that, I also loved the issue before that 124, which speaking of covers, that one has in big bold letters, action in Atlantic City. <laughs> I, I hate it. As a New Jersey guy growing up, going down the shore, hanging out around there. Good God, the sights you see in Atlantic City, folks. It's an interesting place. It is so funny as someone who does live in New York now, as someone who is aware of references, it like feels, you're like, this is not that cool. Like this, <laughs> It's like, it is, it's the Monaco stuff, 100%. I will give you that. I love it. We want to go to Monaco. Every story should be in Monaco. Every story should be on like George Clooney's Lake Cuomo. I mean, again, we're, this is 60, 70s. So I get it. But like that version, right? Like why yeah, are right. we like in some sort of like sexy Hollywood Hills thing? Mm-hmm. Like, why are we, why are we in Atlantic <laughs> City? Like it doesn't, it doesn't add up to him and also the kind of, person that he is because he wouldn't go to Atlantic City. Well, that, I think your point about the anachronism of it may make sense because it's like, I don't know what Atlantic City was like in 1970, whatever. Maybe it was really happening and maybe it does stand up right neck and neck with Monaco um, <laughs> the next issue where it's like, you know, it, it is it is funny to see how it's visualized because like the Atlantic City issue is one thing. Then the Monaco issue is so like it is so sexy and cool and the colors are different and it's way more sleek and kind of modern and all those kind of things. So I don't know. Maybe those differences existed. Maybe there's just in my head. Well, you know what they say? Yeah. Atlantic City is the Monte Carlo of New Jersey. So <laughs> it, it all makes sense. Sure. Yes. <laughs> of course. Yes, it definitely makes sense. I'm trying to remember when they're in Monaco, is that where they're trying to steal the like hammers goons are trying to steal money? Is that where it happens? Or is that Atlantic City? The Monaco stuff is when he accidentally murders the dude. It's like the the end of Hammer's like steps of his plan. Oh, that's right. That's right. This is right after he sliced the diplomat. And then he has to figure out he has to give up his suit and then he has to give which also insane because he's like, he's just murders a man in broad daylight in front of all these people. And then he just goes and talks to the cop and says, listen, bud, I know what it looks like. I didn't do it. Can you give me 24 hours? And the cop's like, yeah, (laughs) which is like so wrong on so many levels (laughs) and is obviously problematic. And we do know that Iron Man's a good person and we know that he didn't do any of these things, but it just is insane that the cop goes, well, you know, he kind of said he was sorry and I believe he wouldn't do it. So we'll just, just take his armor and let him go. He literally (laughs) says, I'm taking a chance on you. And then like, there's a panel of Iron Man walking away. Like, all right, what am I going to do now? It's wild. It's so good. But then he does get to the bottom of it. And he starts to realize that this Justin Hammer guy is behind 
I mean, it takes him a beat, but is behind his malfunctioning suits and goes to the island, which he doesn't realize is an island. (laughs) Silly to me. Which is also, doesn't it feel like it's on water? (laughs) Even if you have, you know, it's a massive, I've been on a cruise ship. You feel like you're on a ship. It's similarly, whatever. There's no way, especially because at the end it does start to float away and you're like, okay, yeah, there is, it's on, it's moving, you're on water. And he goes, of course, to try to see if he can talk to this Justin Hammer guy, which in the movies is played by Sam Rockwell, which I think does a great job. But in the comics is basically like Hugh Hefner. (laughs) He's just in a robe consistently. Yeah, we need more robes and smoking jackets in the <laughs> Marvel Universe. I miss it. I was going to say the same thing about Justin Hammer. I mean, this is, what did you say, Ryan? This is 79, okay? He's Peter Cushing, right? Like, mm, he's 100%. Yeah. You mentioned Star Wars, Sophie. He's he's Grand Moff Tarkin. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Yeah, which was very striking to me and, and so interesting. It's, yeah, I mean, come on. That is pure <laughs> Tarkin right there. Yeah. Look at that. That is great. I think that's what what's interesting is how Marvel Studios Iron Man 2 pulls Justin Hammer, Whiplash, who's one of the villains in this book, you know, a Monaco connection, like a couple of different elements into the movie, but makes them work in completely different ways. And still, like, it's fantastic. I, I Sam Rockwell's Justin Hammer is one of my favorite things, and I'm clamoring for more of him because I love him yeah. so much. Agreed. Yeah, no, he was one of my favorites as well because he's just like, yeah, he's just like so spineless and it's like perfect instead of just instead of our version in the comics where he's just constantly just, yeah, like very wormy, you know, just you won't get past my grips (laughs) as much as you try and then is confused when he does because Iron Man is always going to be smarter than Hammer um, because he is. And then he has, I call him his goons, but he has all these other bad villains that come on who can't take so when he's on the island and he tries to he tries originally to escape then that's when he realizes it's it's, it's on he's on water and then he like kind of climbs back over and he's like shoot now I don't know what to do and then realizes that he's like well I still have my briefcase that they're not able to get into which has my suit in it and puts his suit on and then we get a great battle scene of him against all the villains and then hammers just like basically saying like they're all horrible and they're all worthless and until so we get one he kicks every villain's ass and then one villain just goes i'm out and just like speedboats out of yeah, there. yeah yeah uh what is that hydro master i think he's yeah he's a water master he's not a villain i know very well but i was like holy <laughs> cow i love him he <laughs> yeah, yeah. made the choice to create a jet ski made out of water and rode said water-based <laughs> jet ski off out of the battle. <laughs> I, j- I love him so much. Yeah. Yeah. It was such a move, which <laughs> I really, really loved. Yeah. And then we got, you know, Rhodes coming in to save the day, of course. But then that's when it gets to like, no matter how, like, okay, so he saves the day and he's like, the police are like, all right, you're, we know that you weren't behind this. We're reinstating your suit. <laughs> and then they go, even though you've already been using your other one, but here is your old suit back. And now he's just, now he's just had it. And he's just depressed as hell. 
and doesn't know what to do because people are still mad because they still saw him kill a person in broad daylight. I mean, you can't take that away. I got to correct myself. It was Water Wizard, obviously. Oh, hell yeah. Water Wizard is the villain. <laughs> it's an easy thing to mistake, I think. <laughs> it does. Uh, until we see Water Wizard make his uh, MCU <laughs> debut someday, God, fingers crossed, uh, then you know, we can keep making that mistake. Um, Sophie, I'm so glad you brought this book to us to read and, and to chat about. It's been far too long since I read it, and it uh, brought a lot of joy, a lot of, a lot of fun memories reading this one again. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, I appreciate you both having me on. I mean, this has been a dream. I'm such a big Marvel fan. So I was geeking out being able to do it. And I'm glad that this was a comic uh, and a series that you both really liked and wanted to talk about. And yeah, this has just been such a really fun time. All three of us kind of thoughtfully put the caps back on our whiskey bottles, place them (laughs) down and ride off in our late 70s like hatchbacks. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> well you two will be i'm writing off on my water jet that I created out of water <laughs> you win this round <laughs> yeah we once again want to uh make sure everybody goes and checks out the one you want to marry and other identities i've had which will be available right now thank you once again sophie santos for joining us on the show thank you so much thanks sophie hydro master i mean water wizard away <laughs> water wizard away water wizard out <laughs> Thank you both. Thanks. Thank you once more to Sophie Santos for joining us. That's a comic that deserves that kind of close read, and it's really, really interesting to dive really deep into it. And I think Sophie had a great perspective on everything that was really new and fresh and great to uh, explore. So thanks again to Sophie. All right, that about wraps it up for us this week. This episode of Marvel's Pull List was produced by Ryan Panagos, Tucker Marcus, Jasmine Estrada, with help from Megan Bagala. Jill DeBoff is our director of audio. And Brad Barton is Marvel's Pullis audio development manager. And I got nothing for you, Brad, this week. I wanted to make fun of your hair, but you have really nice hair. Beautiful. I wanted to say you were still stuck in the Halloween times, but <laughs> I don't even know if you celebrate Halloween. Yep. I don't know. Look, I don't know anything about you, Brad. So all this stuff, Tucker and I just make up. I don't know if you know that. It's just us. Riffing. It's just us. We're just crafting stuff out of nowhere in our weird little laboratory new men mount wondegore counter earth style i should have done something about the high <laughs> evolutionary in him i totally forgot i was looking through the books trying to find the thread that i could connect them to brad is the peak of evolution you know like that cartoon of like chimp becoming man well the fully formed version is brad barton yeah and he's got a, a pair of headphones on and a microphone yeah I'm Ryan. And I'm Tucker. (laughs) This is Marvel. Your universe.